Right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll make a start. And just before I begin to say something about Goethe's Faust and alchemy, I would like to um, make a short introduction vis-à-vis the course altogether. In a Renaissance, Oriental Renaissance, Germany's inner directed man and the Principium Individuationis. Just to give us some idea about how the whole thing is intended to hang together, irrespective of debates or discussions that we have along the way. Now, the main title of our series of lectures is meant to refer to the fact that from, a, from around 1750, for the next 150 years and beyond, Germany experienced something like a renaissance in culture, science, and the arts, with a whole galaxy of major figures from Kant, Goethe, and Beethoven, say, via Schopenhauer, Wagner, and Caspar David Friedrich, to Heidegger, Rilke, Heisenberg, and Jung. This cultural explosion, if you like, was different from the actual Italian Renaissance earlier in being, I believe, much less outwardly directed than inwardly directed. One only has to think of Germany's powerful and dominant tradition in music, especially instrumental music, during this period, together with the overall culture's romantic roots, to realize that what we get is an extraordinary opening up and exploration of man's inner worlds. It is therefore not for nothing, I think, that the consciously modern charting of the psyche via psychology was done mainly in German through the work of Freud, Jung, and others. Now, our inner Renaissance was marked, I believe, not coincidentally, by a parallel Oriental Renaissance, in that the former showed itself as peculiarly open to the first intellectual contacts being made during this period between West and East. Basically, I think, because of both renaissances being characterized by a deep-seated concern with and for things of the spirit and the inner life. So deep affinities would seem to have existed apart from direct influence, and it is therefore not surprising to learn that Goethe, for instance, was an avid reader of Kalidasa, the great Sanskrit dramatist, and Jayadeva's 12th-century poem, the Gita Govinda, on the love of Krishna and Radha, while we know of Schopenhauer's discovery of Buddhism and its impact on Wagner, say, the travels to India and study of Indian philosophy by both Hermann Hesse and Jung, as well as others. The term inner-directed man, like its opposite other-directed, was coined by the American sociologist David Riesman, who died just recently. I came across it through the Germanist uh, J.P. Stern. But Riesman also sees the term historically, hence placed between tradition-directed man, as he calls it, medieval, and other-directed man, modern, pressured from outside by technology, peer groups, and the need to consume. Inner-directed applies to post-Renaissance man and therefore fits into our period, which certainly expresses a concern with and for the individual and his or her all-round development of the inner man or woman. As the theologian and philosopher Ernst Troilch put it towards the end of the 19th century, quote, a full and free development of the mind and heart for its own sake, hence totally non-utilitarian. This area of consideration, of course, also involves two key German concepts, Bildung, which can mean education, but also shaping or formation. There is no English equivalent, 
and Selbstverwirklichung or Self-Realization. Both ideas are closely connected with that of individuation, hence the natural preoccupation with what we have called the Principium Individuationis. Philosophically, the Latin term has a long history, demonstrating a traditional human concern with the nature and principle of what uniquely identifies one individual as opposed to another, and with the separation of the universal into individual entities, especially the cause and basis for all this. With roots going back to Aristotle and his related concept from De Anima on the soul of the entelechy, or the realization of what is potential in man, the principle of individuation was taken up and debated by the scholastics of the Middle Ages, in particular Dan Scotus, whose doctrine of thisness or heikitus Jared Manley Hopkins so enthusiastically took up in 1872. But so far as we are concerned, it was undoubtedly the Italian Renaissance and unorthodox hermetic thinker burned at the stake in Rome, not 1600, Giordano Bruno, who seems to form a major link between earlier theories of individuation and the later German interest. Significantly, he spent time in Germany, as well as in this country, and was himself indebted to Nicolaus Cusanus and Paracelsus, bringing them back to life with him, as his own worldview of a totally animated and ensouled nature, populated with living monads or unities, was eagerly absorbed by Leibniz, Herder, Goethe, and Schelling. In fact, um, as we shall see, Bruno and Paracelsus had a hand in creating the Erdgeist, Earth Spirit, whom Faust invokes in his study at the beginning of Goethe's great drama. Schopenhauer, to whom I now come, was likewise an admirer of Bruno, calling him a tender, spiritual, thoughtful being. But, as he says, the concept of individuation he gets from scholasticism, entirely subverting it, however, and transcending it to his own ends in the process. This is Schopenhauer. I shall call time and space the Principium Individuationis, an expression borrowed from the old scholasticism. This is in section 23 of The World as Will and Idea, Die Welt als Wille und Vorstellung. Time and space for Schopenhauer, as we know, are factors that essentially condition individuality, which brings problems and suffering, and which, like the Buddhists, he wants to transcend. Hence Jung, who had studied Schopenhauer intensively, can say in his, in his alchemical studies, quote Jung, the idea that the principle of individuation is the source of all evil is found in Schopenhauer and still more in Buddhism. Nevertheless, the Principium Individuationis is a central topic in the world as will and idea, with over 30 specific references to it. Its interwoven connections with the will, egoism, and the will to live form the starting point for Schopenhauer's philosophy and the pessimistic source of suffering, for he sees it, as he says, as, quote Schopenhauer, the form of knowledge wholly in the surface of the will, which has to be seen through and risen above. It is similar to penetrating, quote again, the veil of Maya which envelops the mind. Indeed, a few pages later, Schopenhauer identifies the two explicitly when he says of the enlightened individual, now in precisely this degree, he sees through the Principium Individuationis, the veil of Maya. Now, both Goethe and Jung see the matter differently insofar as they view the individuation principle more positively. In the case of Faust, being built in, as we shall see, to this character's cardinal characteristic, namely streben or striving, 
whereas in Jung's case it forms the linchpin of, of his psychology. Both writers, however, are highly aware of the dangers involved. The egoism, ruthlessness, greeds and misdeeds committed by Faust along the way, the ego and shadow sides of the psyche um, in Jung's account. In the latter case we get this warning, this is Jung now, but again and again I note that the individuation process is confused with the coming of the ego into consciousness and that the ego is in consequence identified with the self, which naturally produces a hopeless conceptual muddle. Individuation is then nothing but ego-centeredness, but the self comprises infinitely more than a mere ego. And again, Jung from the relations between the ego and the unconscious, there is a destination, a possible goal, beyond the alternative stages dealt with in our last chapter. That is the way of individuation. Individuation means becoming an individual, and insofar as individuality embraces our innermost last and incomparable uniqueness, it also implies becoming one's own self. We could therefore translate individuation as coming to selfhood or self-realization. You'll recall that I made use of the term self-realization or Selbstverwirklichung as a key German concept in connection with Bildung. Indeed, self-realization, together with the exploration and knowledge of the psyche or the inner worlds, has been a German speciality. So that it is no wonder that when the first contacts with the Indian philosophies came about, they resonated, they resonated deeply and were immeasurably developed. Hence Jung can maintain in his essay on Schiller's ideas on the type problem, 1921, where he sees and argues for analogies between Schiller and certain aspects of Indian thinking, the following. This is Jung. It could easily be objected that the analogy between Schiller's train of thought and these apparently remote ideas is very far-fetched. But it must not be forgotten that not so long after Schiller's time, these same ideas found a powerful spokesman through the genius of Schopenhauer and became intimately wedded to Germanic mind, never again to depart from it. In my view, it is of little importance that whereas the Latin translation of the Upanishads by Anti de Perron, published 1801-2, was available to Schopenhauer. Schiller took at least no conscious note of the very meagre information that was available in his time. I have seen enough in my own practical experience, says Jung, to know that no direct communication is needed in the formation of affinities of this kind. We see something very similar in the fundamental ideas of Meister Eckhart and also in some respects of Kant, which display a quite astonishing affinity with those of the Upanishads, though there is not the faintest trace of any influence, either direct or indirect. This completely supports Stephen Cross's assertion in the blurb to his coming lecture in the series on Schopenhauer, where he says that, quote Stephen now, Schopenhauer will here be seen as the bridge between the European philosophical tradition and Indian religious and philosophical thought. This is not a matter of influence, but rather of remarkable affinity between widely separated parts of the world across several thousand years. And finally, John Allitt's two talks We'll be focusing on the Bavarian Illuminati and will take us into a little-known area that opens up both links with Goethe and the field of music. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is just a brief resume of um, where I think we are going and what will be coming to us over the next six weeks.
which enables me now to begin to talk about Goethe's Faust as an opus alchemicum. I should say this, however, before I begin, that the um, that Goethe's Faust, you will remember, is over 12,000 lines, extremely complex, plot-wise as much as anything, but extremely complex. And even inside the field of alchemy, what I can say this evening in one lecture will have to be um, selective. I say this because um, you will find that what I have to say only indirectly touches on the sheets that you have there. But I hope that you, will be, uh, that you will find these useful after the lecture and in the light of what I have to say. I will be touching on some of the scenes that I've duplicated here in German and in English, but I will be saying other things um, largely, I suppose. Now, the title of my talk, as well as in part its approach, derives from two statements by Jung in his Psychology and Alchemy. The first runs, quote Jung, Faust consciously or unconsciously is an opus alchemicum. The second, quote Jung, alchemy had reached its final summit and with it the historical turning point in Goethe's Faust, which is steeped in alchemical forms of thought from beginning to end. Jung's first statement defines the nature of Goethe's drama in terms of two levels, uh, conscious and or unconscious, his second is concerned with the position of Faust along the line of the alchemical tradition, um, while restating its essential nature. This latter quote further indicates that Goethe's play comes at the very end of this tradition, encapsulating a last significant manifestation of it, yet at the same time suggests that it incorporates a tipping over into something else. What Jung, I believe, seems to be implying is the turning of alchemy into psychology, or in other words, the psychologizing of alchemy and the alchemicizing of, um, of psychology. This fascinated Jung throughout his life, something not unexpected from a psychologist who first discovered in what he termed philosophical alchemy, this is Jung's term, the true forerunner of psychology. Philosophical alchemy, incidentally, to distinguish it from that of the amateur chemist, only interested in metallic changes and results, not in the symbolic equivalents represented by these, and involving imaginative projections. To give Jung's term a more precise and explanatory context, and at the same time bringing Goethe, let me quote from Johannes Fabricius's Alchemy, the Medieval Alchemists and Their Royal Art of 1989. This is from Frobicius now. The abundance of hallucinations, visions, and dreams in hermetic science helps to explain the paramount importance ascribed by the alchemists to man's powers of imagination. In the final analysis, the imaginative function appears to be the most important instrument of the goal-makers, whose chemical operations seem to have served as projection hooks for mental processes of unconscious origin. Imagination is the star in man, the celestial or super-celestial body, says Rulin's Lexicon Alchemiae of 1612, in its definition of imaginatio. In passing, the crucial role of alchemy vis-à-vis -vis the imagination in the West should be highlighted. Yeats had realized this when he said of Blake he had learned from Jakob Burma and from old alchemist writers that imagination was the first emanation of divinity, the body of God. 
Now, Martin Ruland, it should be noted, was a German alchemist whose dictionary was published in Frankfurt, Goethe's hometown, and it is likely, or quite likely, that he knew it. In any case, the earlier hermetic scholar and doctor Paracelsus, Goethe often refers to, and Ruland's statement on imagination as being the star in man is basically Paracelsian. And here, to begin with, we should note that Faust is a supremely imaginative drama, with part two in particular possessing the nature of a phantasmagoria in its kaleidoscopic and cinematic shifts of scene. Taking the entire play, with its two introductory scenes, Vorspiel auf dem Theater, Prelude in the Theater, and Prolog im Himmel, the Prolog in Heaven, the, specter under, the spectator undergoes a journey, both complex and devious, um, along different and varying, and varying imaginative levels. And referring back to our first quote from Jung, all this is consciously as well as unconsciously conceived. But to continue for a moment, Johannes Fabricius' argument about imagination and philosophical alchemy, quote him again, in alchemy the adept comes to terms with true imagination, Paracelsus's imagination vera, by means of the act of meditation. Ruland says of this, quoting Ruland now, meditation, the name of an internal talk of one person with another who is invisible, as in the invocation of the deity or communion with oneself, or with one's good angel. The meditative aspect of the opus reveals the alchemist's understanding of their work as a psychic process of transformation also, unfolding pari passu with the chemical process of transformation. In such a manner, the alchemical laboratories took on the function of psychological laboratories as well. The effect was the symbolized chemistry of alchemy, which in the last analysis represents an alchemy of the mind. Ruland's definition of what he understands by meditation, very different from ours today, of course, is a quite brilliant description, however, of the world Faust himself in, in, inhabits, a world in which, can be seen, uh, in which he can be seen constantly communicating with the beings and agents um, Ruland instances. For example... He is continually invoking one spirit or another, as with the earth spirit in the, in the play's opening scene, or addressing invisible presences, as again uh, with the same spirit at the beginning of the Waltenhöhle scene, the forest and, and, and cavern scene, Habner Geist, du gabst mir, gabst mir alles, worum ich bat. All things are come to me, O mighty spirit. All that I asked, you gave me. And he can be seen and heard communing with himself in all his various monologues. Essentially, as Faust himself is aware, his world is that of the great double realm, das Doppelreich, das Große, the expression he uses at the end of Act One, Part Two, to characterize both the reality of the Emperor's court and that of the magically presented figures of Paris and Helen, whom he has agreed to summon up for the court's amusement, but only after his frightening descent to the mysterious mothers. Thus the double realm encompasses the shades of the dead and the domain of spirits in general, but also the world of magical illusion, the court theatre of Goethe's own time with its Laterna Magica, and indeed that conjured up by the poet magician. It is for this reason, I take it, that Rilke absorbed and reused this concept in the ninth of his Sonetta and Orpheus, Sonnets and Orpheus, where the figures of poet and earthly life mingle with shades of the dead. 
Only in the double realm will these voices become eternal and mild, he says. Erst in dem Doppelbereich werden die Stimmen ewig und mild. And we shouldn't perhaps forget that in the field of alchemy itself, substances can be fixed, that's a term, or volatile, the latter being the epithet given to a substance with a tendency to vaporize and rise upward as spirit. Thus in itself, uh, in a way, um, a double realm. To return to Ruland's mention of an internal talk of one person with another who is invisible, strangely or perhaps not so, this is reminiscent of the young Goethe's way of apparently holding actual conversation with the characters of his imagination in 1769 and early 1790. After a serious breakdown in health while studying at Leipzig and before his departure for Strasbourg. It was during this period that via a friend of his mother's, the pietist Susanna von Klettenberg, together with the doctor J.F. Metz, who treated the young poet alchemically for what seems to have been tubercular neck glands, that he first really got acquainted with alchemy. For with Fräulein von Klettenberg, he began a study of Paracelsus and read, for example, Georg von Welling's vast compilation Opus Mago Kabbalisticum et Theosophicum of 1735 and the anonymous um, Aurea Catena Homeri of 1723. The second frontispiece from that is therefore on the front of our um, lecture leaflets. Attributed to Josef Kirschweger, both printed at Frankfurt, which was still a centre for alchemy going back to the 16th century. Impressed by Dr. Metz's application of a file of alchemical crystallized salt, which led to his recovery, the young student set up his own laboratory in the attic at home and began seriously to experiment. In a letter from the 26th of August, 1770, after his move to Strasbourg, he could write to Fräulein von Klettenberg, yet alchemy is still my veiled love. And in his autobiography, Dichtung und Wahrheit, Poetry and Truth, he could say this of his meeting with Herder in the same city. But most of all, I concealed from Herder my mystical cabalistical chemistry and everything relating to it, although at the same time I was still very fond of secretly busying myself in working it out more consistently than it had been communicated to me. Goethe's characteristic thoroughness in mining a vein of knowledge that interested him emerges here. And we can assume that not only were his studies in alchemy, like those of Faust himself, significantly broad and deep, but more so, as we shall see, that they permeated his ways of thought and view of the world. For the moment, it is enough to note this statement from a letter to his Leipzig student friend, Ernst Theodor Lange, of the 17th of January, 1769, just after his recovery at the hands of Dr. Metz. This is Goethe now. Much has happened to me. I have struggled and am free. This calcination was needed in my soul. Alchemical and soul processes are hereby fused together early on in the poet's career, the calcination being the reduction through fiery heat of a metal or mineral to powder or dust, so that, as Lindy Abraham puts it in her Dictionary of Alchemical Imagery, the metallic body or soul of man is reduced into its first matter and renders it porous so that it may more easily receive the influx um, of the divine tincture or spirit. In the young Goethe's case, the analogy is clearly being made to the fiery course of his illness, the suffering entailed, yet necessary for his, continuous well, his continued well-being, then his resulting recovery. Thus the field of alchemy made a decisively personal inroad 
into the poet's early life quite apart from his intellectual interest in the subject. So much so that his entire life pattern, which he once categorized as eine wiederholte Pubertät, a repeated puberty um, involving illness, emotional crisis, then recovery, can be said to mirror um, and enact the actual alchemical process of solve et coagule, dissolve and coagulate, which can be equally applied, as we shall see, to the poet's alter ego Faust. That is, in some sense, what I'm really saying also, is that Goethe's life pattern, if you look at it, is itself an, um, is itself an alchemical one, and so is Faust. There's a lot of Goethe, obviously, in Faust, which is not to say that Goethe himself does not see around Faust. At this juncture, we can even reinforce this linkage by taking the advice Goethe gave to a younger Frankfurt contemporary about to embark on his university studies in 1770. Namely, uh, this is Goethe now, we must not seek to be anything, but to become everything. And I quote now from, uh, from, from Faust, um, early on in, in, in the, the first or the second scene. I'll, I'll quote the, the English translation because I'll probably be short of time. Uh, My heart from learning's tyranny set free shall no more shun distress, but take its toll of all the hazards of humanity and nourish mortal sadness in my soul. I'll sound the heights and depths that men can know. Their very soul shall be with mine entwined. I load my bosom with their weal and woe and share with them the shipwreck of mankind. I should say incidentally that as far as I know, as far as I can see, um, Faust cannot really be translated effectively into English. There's no good translation that one can, can really recommend. The best things that I know are the brilliant scenes that Shelley made before he died, uh, but those are only a few scenes. In his advice to the fellow student, the emphasis is on an expansively encompassing sense of self. In the Faust passage, stress is placed on the hero's desire to experience the heights and depths that men can know, their weal and woe. And I quote the German for this to make it more specific. And, und, so mein, uh, und so mein eigen selbst zu ihrem selbst erweitern, and thereby expand my own self to include their own. In both cases, the movement of thought is similar, and in the Faust extract, it is important to realize that now that Faust is from learning's tyranny set free, or more accurately, now that his thirst for knowledge is cured, this is a more accurate translation of that part of the speech, he is primarily interested in a very different kind of knowing. Uh, acquired by stepping out of his scholar's sterile Gothic study into a whole new world of experience, human, female, social, together with that of nature and the cosmos, just what Mephisto can provide him with. For the two then travel through space and time, uh, Faust's own experiences turning or transmuting into a knowledge that has nothing to do with books and the learning of the schools. Um, matters of intellect or the accumulation and analysis of facts, but with life itself, the heart and the emotions, the enjoyment of the senses, the exercise of magical powers, and a quest for female beauty. Tragedies, of course, happen along the way. But initially, as the great um, forest and cavern scene in part one reveals to us, what Faust experiences is a new and total immersion in wild nature and the domain of my inner self. Maybe I should just read an English translation of the opening of that before I comment in detail. This is what the Penguin uh, version gives of this. 
The first bit I quoted in German. All things are come to me, almighty spirit. This is the earth spirit he's addressing. All that I asked you gave me. Not in vain you turned your visage towards me in the fire, bestowing nature's splendor to be mine. I, and with strength to hold her and enjoy, mine was no baffling of a cold encounter. You taught me in her deepest heart to gaze, to seek as in the bosom of a friend, beholding thus the train of living things and learning to perceive my very brothers in sky and stream and in the silent glade. Or if the bounding tempest tears the forest and giant pines come crashing on the crown of neighbor treetops, grinding branch and bowl, so that the mountain shakes with thud and shock, you lead my steps within the sheltering cavern where I may meet my soul and all the heart of wonder in my spirit stands revealed. Um, now, this fine soliloquy with its exalted address to the earth spirit and whose eloquent uh, um, opening, as I said, we've just quoted, records these newly received gifts of experience in a kind of ecstatically exploratory way, at the same time presenting them as complementary fields, freshly discovered nature, the macrocosm, and his inner self, the microcosm. In fact, the scene's very title, Forest and Cavern, Wald und Höhle, points to this, with the forest embodying nature's universe. Gabs me die herrliche Natur zum Königreich. You gave me glorious nature for a kingdom. I'm, I'm using my own translation now to make the German more accurate. Um, the cavern to which he retreats during the storm being the spot where the inner self is opened up. Dann führst du mich zur sicheren Höhle, zeigst mich dann mir selbst und meine eigenen, und meine eigenen Brust, geheime tiefe Wunder öffnen sich. You lead my steps within the sheltering cavern, where I may meet my soul, and all the heart of wonder in my spirit stands revealed. There I go back to the penguin. Hence outer and inner are here brought together, and it isn't coincidental that Faust also says of the earth spirit and nature, Vergünnest mir in ihre tiefe Brust wie in den Busen eines Freundes zu schauen. Um, you permitted me to gaze into her deep heart um, as into the bosom of a friend, where the deep heart of nature, literally her deep breast, is not only linked to the friend's bosom, but to Faust himself in the cavern. Und meine eigenen Brust, geheime tiefe Wunder öffnen sich, literally and secretly deep wonders in my own breast reveal themselves. Brust, busen, breast and bosom are used three times to link up the entire soliloquy. Macrocosm with microcosm, furthermore rendering nature itself as a world to be intimately, not coldly and detachedly experienced, a coldly wondering visit, kalch downend and besuch, as the text has it. Thus nature and the cosmos are taken into Faust's experiencing subjectivity and we are in a world similar to that of Tintin Abbey. So that if we then say that this brings us into an early romantic universe, in Goethe's case that of Sturm und Drang, storm and stress, we can see that the forest and cavern monologue in its fusion of experiencing wild nature together with its emotionally inward reception is very much of the essence of Wordsworth's and Goethe's period and constitutes a new form of knowledge. Most visibly at this point in the drama, but elsewhere too, most substantially in part one, rather than the more classical part two, um, a Sturm und Drang Faust joins hands with a more historical Faust of late medieval uh, early Renaissance times. Yet significantly there is a close connection 
mainly unnoticed because of the 17th and 18th century upsurge of natural science and Enlightenment thinking in between, I believe, which links Renaissance alchemy and Hermeticism uh, up with the new Romantic concepts of nature and the self. One only has to think, for instance, of the of romantic organicism, the stress on the organic as opposed to the mechanical, and also in <coughs> Renaissance Hermeticism, likewise, but pre-enlightenment uh, um, um, and science, of course, the stress on the organic, the, the, the material as well. Um, for, um, for Goethe and his contemporaries, we know, found great sustenance in thinkers like Giordano Bruno, Ficino, and Pico della Mirandola, or again in Cornelius Agrippa, from whom Goethe took his idea for the apparition of Mephisto as a black poodle, and Jakob Böhme, whose work is steeped in alchemical thought forms and is the bridge between such Renaissance thinkers and Protestant mysticism. One can certainly argue that Böhme is responsible for starting to psychologize alchemy in a pietistic way, and that both Goethe and Jung picked up from there. But note first in more detail where Burma himself comes from in this account of Renaissance Hermeticism from M. H. Abrahams's Natural Supernaturalism. Renaissance vitalism had envisioned an integral universe without absolute divisions in which everything is interrelated by a system of correspondences. And the livingly argue that Burma is responsible for starting to psychologize alchemy in a pietistic way and that both Goethe and Jung picked up from there. But note first in more detail where Burma himself comes from in this account of Renaissance Hermeticism from M. H. Abrahams's Natural Supernaturalism. Renaissance vitalism had envisioned an integral universe without absolute divisions in which everything is interrelated by a system of correspondences. And the living is continuous with the, in, with the uh, inanimate, nature with man and matter with mind. A universe, moreover, which is activated throughout by a dynamism of opposing forces, which not only sustains its present existence, but also keeps it moving along the way back toward the unity of its origin. In this way of thinking, some Romantic philosophers detected intimations of a viable counter-metaphysic to contemporary mechanism, elementarism, and dualism, provided that, as Schelling said with respect to Burma, the mythical elements are translated into, into philosophical concepts, and these are ordered into a, inverted commas, scientific, that is, a coherent conceptual system. This picture of an integral universe without absolute divisions, in which everything is interrelated by a system of correspondences, is very much Faust's own world, since the operation of magic is only possible where man as microcosm is deeply mirrored in nature as macrocosm, both being underpinned by a connecting and encompassing world soul structured as a spiritual hierarchy. Ascending and descending levels are thereby all interlinked, as in the traditional chain of being, so that the magus, through the power of his art, can summon from up or down the great staircase the spiritual beings inhabiting these levels. And this is essentially, without going into it anymore, this is exactly what we, we, um, we get from the top to the bottom here in these different rings, and which Goethe undoubtedly knew. Um, 
In Faust's own case, of course, we get in the play's opening his nighttime invocation by Nostradamus' book of the sign of the macrocosm with its rejuvenating influx, then the earth spirit's terrifying presence in its spurt of flame. Later, outside the city walls, returning with his disciple Wagner from the Easter walk, there is Faust's almost identical invocation of aerial spirits, Geister in der Luft, about whom Wagner, the humanist pedant, warns him and out of which Mephistopheles soon appears from the evening mists in the shape of the famous Black Poodle. At this point, it's highly worth recalling Harald Janssen's uh, Goethe's Faust as a Renaissance man, since he reminds us of the Renaissance's wide-spectrum attitude to the supernatural, in which every shade and gradation would allowed for, especially the so-called middle spirits, whom Paracelsus termed elementarwesen, elemental beings. As Jan says, quote him, in the Renaissance, the more freely speculative writers combined the pagan elf and fairy law of their own lands with the spirit law of Greco-Roman antiquity. And there is much of this syncretic takeover in Faust as witness the parallel scenes of the Walpurgisnacht and the Klassischer Walpurgisnacht, let alone the Walpurgisnacht's Traum or Oberon's and Titania's golden wedding, all of which reminds us of Goethe's particular love of a Midsummer Night's Dream, The Tempest, and Ovid's Metamorphosis. Finally here, recalling M. H. Abrahams's point about the Renaissance's integral universe without absolute divisions, one can further argue that the very structure of Faust, with its imaginative levels and scene locations, are a perfect mirror image of this statement. For to begin with, the play's overall form and its hero's career are open, not closed. Goethe's employment of what is termed in German the Fetzenzenen, or scrapbook technique, which the Sturm und Drang playwrights adapted for their own purposes from their study of Shakespeare, accounts for this structurally. It means switching or cutting from scene to scene and rapidly changing the places of action without linkage, as with a magic lantern or, with, or, um, or in film. This is especially true of part one, which has no act divisions or even numbering of scenes, and in the more classical part two, with its typical five act divisions, the same principle, I think, is basically at work. With unexpected shifts of scene and domain still operating, although the pace seems more drawn out. Again, Goethe's drama does not really begin with Faust's long opening monologue. We tend to think this, uh, you know, his long opening monologue at night in his study, but with the two introductory stage events prefacing this the prelude in the theatre and the prologue in heaven. Um, the former was modelled on the prologue to Kalidasa's play Shakuntala which Goethe had read with great excitement in 1791, uh, the latter on the opening to the book of Job, where Satan appears among the sons of God to converse with the Lord. The theme of, Hast thou considered my servant Job, is transposed as, The Lord, know you one Faust? Mephistopheles, the doctor? The Lord, him my servant. This exchange, plus their agreement as to whether the servant can be seduced away from God or not, means that thematically Faust precedes his own entry um, into the drama. And perhaps I should say this, um, I haven't put this in, but I think it's important to put this in. The sense we get, therefore, when we read Faust, is that the whole of Faust's story, the whole of Faust's career, is inset 
by the two um, um, uh, introductory uh, uh, um, preludes or, or, or pieces, which are stage events, namely the prelude in the theatre and the prologue in heaven, and also, which I haven't come to yet, the final scene of the drama, which is really uh, about Faust's ascent upwards after he's dead. It's Faust in the in the post-mortem st uh, uh, stage and is called Bergschluchten in German, that's the title of the scene, uh, or Mountain Ravines. And in some sense, uh, one can argue, I'll probably say this again later on, the end parallels the beginning. So that it begins in heaven, as it were, and then it ends on the flight of, of, of Faust's immortal part up to heaven. The only thing, the only difference is this, that if you look at the prologue in heaven, that has a quite specific um, Old Testament, as I've mentioned, and morality or mystery play um, kind of tone about it, whereas the, whole, the end of the Faust drama itself is much more mysterious, much more mysterious, and is much more carefully uh, modulated in steps upwards, so that one can say that if... If the, if the drama ends where it began, it ends nevertheless um, on, a, um, on a different point of the spiral, if you like. But it is certainly, and I will come on to this alchemically in a moment, it is certainly a circular drama. And even more so, I haven't mentioned this at all, but the thing I've left out, there is one more introductory speed, uh, thing to the drama, which is not a stage event as such. It's the dedication that Goethe wrote called Zu Eignen. I know. But it is very important because Goethe is there looking back over his past, his past creations, and his past friends who have died, and saying that there will be no one that he really knows who will be able to appreciate the Faust that is now coming out. And in some sense, he himself in that uh, opening poem, a dedication, is very like Faust talking to uh, spiritual beings or whatever you like. As someone has said, like a shaman communicating with the dead. Um, and in some sense, this gives this itself, but also the two prologues, give to the entire um, uh, career of Faust, the entire drama, something that is in the nature of a parable that is seen sub specie aeternitatis, from the point of view of eternity. So uh, man and whatever he is up to, represented by Faust, who is a kind of everyman, basically, is seen from two points, as it were, um, at the beginning and the end of the drama. And this makes also the whole of Faust, in one sense, highly self-conscious, and also, if you think of it in the theatre, highly theatrical, deliberately theatrical. Um, now, um, I left my text at the point of uh, talking about the exchange between the Lord and Mephistopheles, and the fact that Thematically, it's also interesting, thematically Faust precedes his own entry into the drama. Um, this again is very important. And as if to reinforce this, Faust's opening monologue begins in medias res. The first line of the drama that Faust says is, Habe nun ach philosophie durchaus studiert. Have now alas thoroughly studied philosophy and all the rest of it. And he's fed up with it and he's despairing and so on and so forth before. Um, this is difficult to render into English as an effective opening um, so that the sense of in medias res, of continuity from the exchange between the Lord and Mephistopheles, really doesn't come out in the English opening. Um, this, I think, is, 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 um, uh, is important. 
Um, still, this scene, that is a Faust's opening monologue, is tied into an ongoing from the prologue in heaven with the heavenly domain and its diabolical presence clearly in touch with the earthly, even if one gets a definite sense throughout the play that humankind very much dwells in its own, in its own uh, terrain. I keep on thinking recently now at what point of course, it's, it's, it's 1791 that Goethe read um, um, Kalidas's uh, Shakuntala drama. I can't help thinking that in some sense there is throughout the whole of Faust that kind of world that you get in Indian mythology and indeed with Kalidasa of the gods and the human beings interchanging and communicating with each other. This is entirely the world of the Doppelbereich, or the Doppelreich that I talked about um, earlier. Um, however, bear in mind that at the very end of the drama, we ascend back up, as I mentioned, to a heavenly, albeit different level, with Faust's post-mortem uh, remains. The stage directions are marked uh, Bergschluchten, mountain ravines, forest rock desert, holy anchorites scattered up the mountainside, secluded in rocky clefts, where the topography, like the action, leads upwards. We get other stage directions, such as Tifa region, deep region, mittlere, uh, middle, and so on, related to the various anchorites' positions, then a choir of blissful boys circling around the highest peaks, followed by angels hovering in the upper atmosphere, carrying Faust's immortal part, and Dr. Marianos, holiest of the anchorites, quote, in the highest, purest cell, with perhaps a backward glance uh, um, at Faust's very different nighttime study at the beginning of part one. The final section of the scene then ushers in mainly feminine figures, among them the transfigured Gretchen, Faust's great early love, as Una Poinitentium, and the Mater Glor Gloriosa herself, who calls on the former to Komm hebe dich zu hören sphären, come lift yourself to higher spheres. Thus we re-enter by means of a vastly irregular circle, the world of the prologue in heaven, as I mentioned, only this time, instead of the three archangels, Raphael, Gabriel, and Michael, with the Lord and Mephistopheles, we get a panoply of feminine beings culminating in the work's famous last two lines, das ewig weibliche zieht uns hinan, the eternal feminine draws us upward. So that the masculine prologue is complemented by the feminine close. Um, in what one might see as, a, as an alchemical balancing out and retrospective fusion, in short, a kind of chemical wedding. We get an overall cyclical movement from start to finish, beginning and ending beyond the confines of physical life. Something which would seem to mirror the opus circulatorium, another name for the opus alchemicum itself. To quote Johannes Fabricius again on this, the circular path of the sun through the zodiac is the model of the opus alchemicum, which is frequently called the opus circulatorium. All important is the dualistic view of the universe as the battleground of opposing forces. The, alchem the alchemist's intention is to resolve this conflict harmoniously, one, by a, pu by a putrefying movement of death and rebirth, two, by return to primal matter, and three, by rotatory movement, turning the wheel of creation backward in an opus contra naturum, aimed at a return to the source of all creation or God. This is the famed opus circulatorium in which the subject of regeneration consumes himself in the manner of the Euroboric serpent. This passage charts, in alchemical terms, I believe, 
both the general shape of Goethe's play as well as Faust's own career, so that the work itself is the opus alchemicum, Faust's path through life and beyond, embodying the alchemical changes en route. Emphasis is also laid here on hermetic science's desire to resolve harmoniously all dualistic views of life, and this is a Goethean position both in Faust and in his anti-Newtonian Farbenlehre, or theory of colours, also underpinned by a powerful alchemical base. Um, I would recommend on this Henri Botov's The Wholeness of Nature, Goethe's Way of Science. More specifically, one can relate the first stage in this desired process, namely a putrefying movement of death and rebirth, to Faust's initial situation in his symbolically structured nighttime study, culminating in thoughts of suicide as he lifts a poison chalice belonging to his father to his lips, when the sounds of Easter bells and choir announce the celebration of Christ's resurrection. An overwhelming feeling of rebirth makes him desist, he has clearly gone through a dark night of the soul, and this can be seen as embodying the initial phase of the alchemical process, the negredo, a blackening, disintegrating state of which the putrefactio is a part. As Lindy Abraham puts it, it is the initial black stage of the opus alchemicum in which the body of the impure metal, the matter for the stone, or the old outmoded state of being is killed, putrefied and dissolved into the original substance of creation, the prima materia, in order that it may be renovated and reborn in a new form. This includes Johannes Fabricius's second point, a return to primal matter, as well as his third, a rotatory movement, turning the wheel of creation backward in an opus contra naturum, aimed at a return to the source of all creation or God. Since through church bells and choir, this is exactly what happens. So that Faust goes back in his memory to the springtime of his youth before all his problems of epistemology and ontology start. As he exclaims, O turnet fort, ihr süßen Himmelslieder, die Träne quilt die Erde hat mich wieder. Begin once more, O sweet celestial strain, tears dim my eyes, earth's child I am again. So what we get in this highly complex, inwardly fluctuating scene is a miniature opus circulatorium which structurally and psychologically sets the pattern, I think, for the entire work. Finally here, Faust's initial rebirth, as we have already indicated, is put into action at just the crucial moment through the news of Christ's resurrection, but it is also alchemically parallel by this in that Christ himself, in medieval alchemy, the risen Christ, that is, uh, was looked upon as being the philosopher's stone itself, a lapis philosophorum. Uh, this would seem to be implied in the scene's last choral stanza. Christ is erstanden aus der Verwesung Schoß. Christ has risen out of putrefaction's womb. I would now like to consider the corresponding opening scene of part two, in which again Faust undergoes a rebirth preceded by a similar state of disintegration that takes place, however, in the final scene of part one, set in Gretchen's prison cell. I would say this, that in the alchemical procedure, um, these procedures continually um, go onwards. There are several scenes of uh, negredo and, and coming and rebirths and so on, in which the original metal 
or substance is constantly being purified. So it's an ongoing process. And this is certainly the case here uh, in Faust. If you take, say, the uh, first scene of part two um, and parallel it with the first scene of part one. In fact, I think that this is quite deliberate on Goethe's part. That is to say that, that the opening to part two is a deliberate parallel to what you get in, 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 uh, in part one, but at a higher level of his um, inner and alchemical development. Um, <coughs> It's another uh, Negredo situation, more dramatic and violent this time, where Gretchen, awaiting her death sentence for killing her child by Faust and already half-crazed, refuses to be saved by the, by the diabolical means offered to her. Faust himself is heart-stricken with remorse. O verich nie geboren, would that I had never been born. But is whipped away by Mephisto and appears in part two's opening scene, apparently senseless, stretched out, yet restless and trying to find sleep. The scene is, is marked Anmutige Gegend, or Charming Region, and it possesses quasi-Elysian overtones. During its first half, Ariel and a chorus of what are essentially nature spirits hold a commentary on Faust's condition and his new surroundings. The former, to the sound of Aeolian harps, commands the latter to assist him, as they do as elves each spring for both the just and the unjust. In this case, it means bathing Faust im Tau aus Letus Flut, in dew from Lethe's flood, so that he can be given back to dem heiligen Licht, the holy light. And this takes place in the second half of the scene. Lethe, as we know, is the river of forgetting in the Greek underworld. But here, as in part two's final episode, Goethe has Dante more in mind, where Lethe flows not in hell, but in the earthly paradise, Purgatorio Canto, Canto 28 and where souls admittedly penitent are purged and purified. And to point up this context, Faust's great monologue on awakening, this Leben's pulse schlagen frisch lebendig, life's pulses now are beating afresh, is written in Tetzerima, but it is not printed as such, being set up in, an almost, in, in almost 50 lines of irregular verse paragraphs so that it looks, like, uh, so that it, it looks more like an inner-directed soliloquy. Nevertheless, a small inner pilgrimage is sketched, spaced out in four stages, and this echoes precisely Ariel's uh, line earlier about nature's period of rest between evening and morning twilight. Vier sind die Pausen nächtige Weile. Four are the watches marking nighttime's passing. During this time, the nature spirits will extract des Vorwurfs glühen bittere Pfeile, self-reproaches arrows of bitter fire, and purifies an inneres von erlebtem Graus, his heart of lived-through horror. The four watches are then detailed in accompanying sleep. Um, oh, I'm sorry, the four watches are then detailed in four separate stanzas, comprising as follows, one, twilight's descent with accompanying sleep, two, the coming of night with Stern and Stern, star after star, um, and des Mondes voller Pracht, the moon's full splendor, Three, a period of suspended time when pain and happiness both evaporate and one becomes hale again as the shapes of valley and hill, bushes and their shadows, then silvery waves of unripe grain beneath to, uh, begin to emerge. And four, when it is time to throw off sleep's husk and begin the new day's activity. Thus inner and outer here are brought together. Faust's stages of recovery and rebirth being precisely paralleled in the diurnal round of the macrocosm. 
This is only possible, I believe, by virtue of the alchemical substructure underpinning this. To begin with, one notes the emphasis on inner and outer transformation, and the fact that, as with the overall alchemical process itself, there are four major stages described in terms of four colours. Black, the negredo, white, the albedo, yellow gold, the citrinitas, and red gold, the rubedo. The first stage, that of the nigredo, is easy to locate in Faust's inner state of bitter self-reproach, with its roots in Gretchen's prison scene, which is exactly the frame of mind and heart he is in as evening twilight descends and starts the process of purificatio. The second major stage of healing or whitening, namely the albedo, is for our purpose here interestingly described by Johannes Fabricius as follows. In the albedo, the virgin and the moon appear as the great alchemical symbols of sublimation. The polluted soul, um, extracted and purified in heaven, gradually acquires the features of the heavenly virgin, just as the perilous new moon, by means of ablution, is transformed into the glittering half-moon, then into the three-quarters phase, and finally into the full moon of the white rebirth, at which we must recall from the Nature Spirit's second stanza, the appropriate lines, Tiefsten ruins Glück besiegeln herrsch des Mondes voller Pracht. Sealing happiness's deepest peace, there reigns the moon's full splendor. The third major stage, that of the Citrinitas, becomes the yellowing dawn ushered in with the Spirit's third stanza. And Fabricius is again relevant. The clear moonlight of the albedo leads the adept out of the black night of the soul, the negredo, into the dawning of consciousness. This would be the citrinitas, heralding the advent of full consciousness symbolized by the midday sun at the final red stage of the opus, the rubedo. Now, this fourth stage, that of the rubedo, is indirectly and differently accentuated in the spirit's fourth stanza. It is Ariel who comes straight after, describing the full violence and explosion of the new day, who really introduces this stage, before it is taken up in toto by Faust himself on awakening. The great monologue which ensues is a, is a linchpin, both in terms of Faust's inner development and a new orientation towards nature and the cosmos. These can be initially described as, firstly, a restructuring, or at least modification of Faustian striving, streben, forced on him by confronting the full glare of the rising sun. Secondly, a more appreciative, more aesthetic, hence classical, awareness of nature, consequent on his recovery in the midst of Elysian surroundings, which at the same time is less ecstatic if more considered and considering than in his forest and, and cavern soliloquy. To take the second first, since this is the theme of the opening verse paragraph, Faust here shows a new awareness of the role played by the earth in his recovery. Greeting the morning twilight, he says, You earth were also steadfast through this night, and breathe now at my feet rejuvenated afresh, already beginning to surround me with pleasure. But this, is then momentarily, but this then momentarily results in the stirring up of his old desires, zum höchsten Dasein immerfort zu streben, typical Faustian, to strive continually for the highest being. 
although he then resumes his delighted notation of his immediate surroundings with hundreds of bird calls echoing out of the woods, the swathes of early morning, mist in the valleys, the freeing of scents and colours, and flowers and leafage dripping with dew, so that he can finally ex exclaim, Ein Paradies wird um mich, uh, um mich her die Runde, a paradise lies circle round about me. After he continues his response by gazing up towards the more distant mountains and recording the stepwise descent of the first light along their slopes, in which Goethe is recalling a memorable journey he made through Switzerland in 1797, almost 30 years earlier, we reach the point where the sun appears and blinds him. It steps forth, and already unfortunately dazzled, I turn away, pierced by pain in my eyes. He then applies this situation to man's inner life, to his longings and hopes, significantly switching from I to we, so that Faust now seems to be generalizing from his own position outwards. And just as with the rising sun we gaze and wait in expectation for it to burst over the horizon, so with our hopes and longings, as they stand on the point of fulfillment, a surplus of possibilities sometimes overwhelms us. Creating like the sun, ein Flammen übermaß, an, an excess of flame, ein Feuermeer, a sea of fire, so that we likewise turn away to earth again, surrounded mit Schmerzen, Freuden, Wechseln, Ungeheuer, with pain and joy monstrously alternating. The imagery here suggests the so-called reddening stage of the opus with the alternating pain and joy, indicating a conjunctio oppositorum, a conjunction of opposites. Indeed, the risen sun in all its majesty often symbolizes the philosopher's stone, as in the final picture of the Splendor Solis, 1582, of Salomon Trismosing. There's a copy in the British Museum. But Faust is unable to do anything with it, opting instead for the waterfall and its rainbow. First of all, though, it is worth pointing out the connection between our scene and both Faust's opening monologue in part one and the forest and cavern episode. Not only is the earth spirit invoked and addressed in these respectively, and one senses is in his invisible hand at work uh, through Ariel and his spirits in this scene, but there would seem a similarity is being made between Faust's inability to endure the earth spirit's apparition in his reddish flame, that's in his, the opening scene of part one, and his inability here to face the rising sun. These are instances of what Harold Jans has called echo-structures. One of the plays organizing formal principles, as is, of course, the motif of striving or streben, streben that resounds um, uh, throughout. Um, but return, Faust places the sun behind him. So bleibe denn die Sonne mir im Rücken. So then let the sun remain behind me and turns his attention to the waterfall rushing down through a ridge of rock mit wachsendem Entzücken with growing rapture and his inability here to face the rising sun. These are instances of what Harold Jans has called echo-structures. One of the plays organizing formal principles, as is, of course, the motif of striving or streben, streben that resounds um, uh, throughout. Um, but return, Faust places the sun behind him, so bleibe denn die Sonne mir im Rücken, so then let the sun remain behind me and turns his attention to the waterfall rushing down through a ridge of rock mit wachsendem Entzücken with growing rapture, and especially the rainbow spanning its descent. It is as if the earthly paradise has been recreated, so that Faust now reorientates himself in these final lines. Um, it mirrors human striving, 
Reflect on this and you will understand more clearly from images of colour we take our life. I'll read the German because it's marvellous. Der spiegelt ab des menschliche Bestreben. Im Sinne nach und du begreifst genauer am farbigen Abglanz haben wir das Leben. Here we get a very different definition and location for human striving, one that not only centers it in life and nature as opposed to the beyond, for this is above our capabilities, but also that human endeavor and its goals, the essences and truths which man is always climbing after, must be mediated and filtered through their images and symbols here on earth. With these three lines, that's the ones I've just quoted now, um, a new stage in Faust's career and understanding is reached that is essentially cognate with Goethe's own beliefs. In fact, the way those lines are put gives them a kind of authorial aura. Um, they embody a newly discovered insight, reflective advice, and a philosophical summation of where we are or should be. And this is pointed up, incidentally, if you look at that speech, by Faust switching from I to we and you in the course of his speech. Goethe himself said this, for example, in the introduction to his 1825 essay on the theory of the weather, addressed to the English meteorologist, uh, meteorologist Luke Howard, um, with whom he conducted an exchange of letters. The truth which is identical with the divine will never be directly perceived by us. We can only behold it via images, examples, symbols, and in single related appearances. We will become aware of it as incomprehensible life, and yet will not be able to renounce the wish to comprehend it. This is true of all the phenomena of the intelligible world. Note that the same word, abglance, um, image or reflection, the uh, schaunis nuim abglance, we only see it in its reflection or image, is used in both passages, that is to say, in the end of Faust's soliloquy and in the, the prose bit from, uh, from Goethe's um, essay. Um, and this word is a favourite of Goethe's, being the title of one of his Westöstlicher Divan poems, as well as a term from his Farbenlehrer or Theory of Colours. The rainbow's farbiger abglance also possesses alchemical overtones related to the image of the cauda pavonis or peacock's tail, as witness this account. When the blackness of the nigredu is washed away, it is succeeded by the appearance of all the colours of the rainbow, which look like a peacock displaying its luminescent tail. This can also come before the robedo as well. Jung has suggested that the basis for this phenomenon may be the iridescent skin that often forms on the surface of molten um, uh, metal. Um, now, Faust's progress along the curve of self-knowledge and self-development, whatever his backslidings and side-trackings, what Jung calls the individuation process, and which he sees represented by philosophical alchemy, cannot for Goethe exclude constant involvement with the real world outside the self. As he formulated in 1823, man can only know himself insofar as he knows the world, which he is only aware of within himself as he himself is within the world. For Goethe, as indeed for Faust, the Principium Individuationis, in this sense where matters of self-perception, self-understanding and self-growth are of the essence, this was a major central uh, and central concern, being at the heart of his speculations on the nature and destiny of man. 
Um, it is the law responsible for, indiv for individual human uniqueness, that which creates individual differentiation and is both source and moving power. And in this latter function it is, as implied earlier, close to Aristotle's concept of entelechy. Goethe was familiar with both ideas, the first coming to him by way of Leibniz's more dynamic usage of the term, while the second has a direct bearing on Faust. Um, and I will finish with just this one uh, uh, exploration into the entelechy. Um, a key textual reference here is the best way to illustrate this. In the final scene of the play where the stage directions announce Faust's apotheosis, as angels hovering in the upper atmosphere bearing Faust's immortal part, it has been revealed that Goethe's original draft was um, Chor der Engel, Faust's Entelechie heranbringend, choir of angels bringing up Faust's Entelechie. Like the Leibnizian monad, um, this is indestructible and what survives. In his conversations with Eckermann, there are several references to his concept of Entelechie worth bringing in here. On the 1st of September 1829, for instance, we find this. This is Goethe. I doubt not of our immortality, for nature cannot dispense with the um, Entelechia. Then on the 3rd of March 1830, Leibniz had similar thoughts about independent beings, and indeed what we term an Entelechia, he calls a monad. But the longest and most revealing passage comes from the 11th of March 1828. Every Entelechia is a piece of eternity and the few years during which it is bound to the earthly body does not make it old. But on the 1st of September 1829, for instance, we find this. This is Goethe. I doubt not of our immortality, for nature cannot dispense with the um, Entelechia. Then on the 3rd of March 1830, Leibniz had similar thoughts about independent beings, and indeed what we term an Entelechia, he calls a monad. But the longest and most revealing passage comes from the 11th of March 1828. Every Entelechia is a piece of eternity, and the few years during which it is bound to the earthly body does not make it old. But if the Entelechia is of a powerful kind, as in the case with all men of natural genius, then with its um, animating penetration of the body, it will not only act with strengthening and ennobling power upon the organization, but it will also endeavor with its spiritual superiority to confer the privilege of perpetual youth. Thence it comes that in men of superior endowments, even during their old age, we constantly, Goethe may be thinking of himself, we constantly, perceive, uh, um, we constantly perceive fresh epochs of singular productiveness. They seem constantly to grow young again for a time, and that is what I call a repeated puberty, eine wiederholte Pubertät. As we said earlier, this repeated puberty mirrors the alchemical process of solve et coagule, so that Faust's entelechy and its further upward progress, as detailed by the various groups of angels and blessed boys, are thereby alchemicized. Thank you very much. Thank you.